Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Subi Rautio, and I am one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we are joined by Kailin Xie, who is currently working at the University of Warwick, but will shortly move to the University of Birmingham to take up the lectureship in the International Development Department. Kailin is join, joining us to talk about her new book, Embodying Middle-Class Gender Aspirations, Perspectives from China's Privileged Young Woman, which was published in 2021 by Cal- Palgrave Macmillan. Embodying Middle-Class Gender Aspirations takes a feminist approach to analyze the lives of well-educated urban Chinese women. The book explores the gendered attitudes young women hold to shed light on what keeps mainstream Chinese middle-class women conforming to the current gender regime. By illuminating the contradictory effects of neoliberal techniques deployed by a familial authoritarian regime in urban China, the book argues that, paradoxically, women's individualistic determination to succeed has often led them onto the path of conformity by pursuing exemplary norms which fit into the party state's agenda. I will be discussing the book in more detail with Kailing, who I have the pleasure of joining us from Coventry on the show today. Kailing, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Suvi. It's a great pleasure to join you today. It's a pleasure for me as well. Um, I'd like to begin by asking you about your background. Um, how did you, what brought you to write about middle-class gender aspirations in contemporary China? Well, this book in many ways reflects my self-exploration of who I am as someone born into an urban Chinese family under the one-child policy in the 1980s. I grew up witnessing China's uh, social economic transformations in the 90s, went to university in China and the job market in the first decade of the millennium. Like many people living in China, the country's dramatic social transformations since the economic reform certainly have left marks in one way or another on our personal life that affects how we understand and experience the world. 
So I started this book project with a tormented feeling for me personally that perplexed me at the juncture of turning 27, the age for, uh, from which China state media officially labeled me as a leftover woman. So in the same year when I was 27, I broke up with my long-term boyfriend in China, with all my family and friends were so concerned about my future fortune of finding a suitable partner to marry. So at the time, I was determined to look for answers to my questions. For, um, what does it mean to be a woman? And why, to a large extent, I and many of my friends feel being shackled by this unspeakable sense of destiny that seems to have been prescribed to every Chinese woman I knew. So getting married and having children before being too late, let's say, quotation mark, too late. And there's this really strong sense of uh, you have to make sure things happen at the right time in your life as a woman. So this book records my intellectual journey in the quest of a meaningful life outside of the Chinese societal norm for girls. Personally, I think it is very precious for me, but also risky, but a necessary journey of self-transformation. In the meantime, I want to share these stories in this book with integrity and authenticity as the one-child policy has become part of our history and been replaced with the three-child policy this year. And now the country wants to encourage women to have more children. So I think that uh, the issues touched in my book can add something valuable to the journey of others as the burns of such policy shift is still unfolding. Since personal is always political, in my opinion, the stories and reflections accumulated through, uh, through this book, uh, within this book, resonate with tensions experienced by many women of my time, which hopefully it illuminates the social constraints that Chinese women face today. By making this structural constraint visible, I hope that it will help those who work to change the structure for the better. That's why I um, wrote the book. I mean, that, that, that motivation you have to tell your own personal narrative really does come out in each of the chapters. Um, and, and it's something that I think um, is really, really brave of you to, to kind of push forward through your text. Um, before we move into um, the contents of the book in more detail, perhaps you could tell our listeners um, how you define a privileged woman. My definition of privilege is relatively speaking within the Chinese contents, and I, be- I base my concept of privilege on the different impacts on girls born under the one-child policy based on how it, their life is are shaped by China's existing social and economic structure. So first, my research cohort is privileged through their urban birth. And as the, and those of you who research on China, you would know that China has a long-standing rural-urban divide, which has been growing since the economic reform. So this reform has generated contrasting experience for urbanites and rural dwellers due, due to their uh, the partial, partiality of China's development policies with its uneven distribution of public spending, which has long prioritized uh, urban development. So I think um, for my research ho- cohort, for girls born in the urban families, how their, res- uh, how their parents responded to the one-child policy uh, differs from those families living in the countryside because of the economic structure. For instance, um, parents living in the city, often they are um, employed by the China's Danway um, system which is a state-organized, um, uh, controlled uh, work unit. Therefore, the state policy have much tighter grip upon these families. So therefore, one-child policy in many ways are better implemented in Chinese cities compared to the uh, countryside. 
where at, and at, at the same time, because the uh, Chinese cities has better uh, pension provisions and wealth fair support. Therefore, the traditional idea of raising a son to prevent old age poverty um, is relatively loose and less prevail in comparison to the countryside. So parents living uh, in the cities um, have different kind of outlook um, and the, the, the idea of some preference is less severe um, as we observe in the city compa- um, compared to the rural area. So that's the first layer. The second um, these girls are privileged through their higher educations. As we know that the Chinese government reopened its universities in 1977, and the higher education in China has expanded at a rapid rate since the early 1990s. So there was this famous uh, policy called Bingui, which is the combination or merger of two tracks, a unification of state-funded and self-funded programs in higher education in China. So this policy was introduced in 1995 and it was adopted throughout all the provinces and different types of universities by the late 1990s and early 2000s. It has resulted in a rising number of uh, provincial higher education institutions, which have greatly increased opportunity for participation overall. So as a result, enrollment in higher education rose from 1.15% in 1980s to 29.7% in 2013. So the combination of the one-child policy and the expansion of higher education has significantly increased girls' participation in higher education, which made the female-to-male ratio in higher education enrollment rose to 1 in 2010. So if you think about the girl born in the urban families and their fam their parents invest heavily into their education because the lack of male siblings competition of the family resources and they also grow up at a time that China expanded its higher education. So these two factors come together to make really increase their chances to be well educated. Um, but at the same time, there's another layer, which is um, these women are privileged as China's rising middle class. As a result of China's booming economic uh, economy during the reform era, urban households from the majority of the countries, new, um, basically the urban households form the majority of the country's new rising middle class which enjoys increasing spending powers and growing influence in society. So most of my participants' parents, from their parents' generation, they are already established urban um, household. And then their, uh, their heavy investment their, in, their, in their children's education has also provided social capital for their children to further consolidate and establish themselves as um, in this kind of advantaged position in the cities. So even for the few participants whose parents are relatively poorer urban residents, their only child's higher education has also functioned as an engine of upward social mobility that enables them to enter and become China's so-called rising middle class. So I think these are the three three different elements, and I categorize my research uh, cohort as relatively privileged within contemporary Chinese society. So in chapter two, you delve into more of the policy changes that you just described through your definition of a Chinese privileged woman. And in this chapter, you consider how these policies have shaped the social and economic landscape of women and families. Could you tell us a bit about this? Um, Could you briefly summarize how these policy changes have generated gender gaps that are experienced um, across different demographic groups and formed uneven sex ratios in present day Chinese society. And what does this tell us about um, the Chinese nation 
and the and the state. Well, you, um, although my book is uh, focused on these so-called relatively privileged women, I think it's also important to locate their privilege within the wider um, economic social structure. And we all know that China's economic reform has really generated a tremendous amount of economic growth. But in the same time, it also dramatically widened the income gap between rich and poor and deepened the rural and urban divide, as I mentioned earlier. So we also must remember that China's reform and opening up started at the same time that parallel with the, new, the global neoliberal restructuring that's happening about the same time in the global economy. So its development policies, despite the state remains in charge of the direction of the market, the deregulation and privatization means the growing inequality within the country alongside of its remarkable GDP growth, they happened at the same time. So instead of a diamond-shaped society with a large middle class in the center, the distribution of wealth in China looks more like a pyramid with very small minority at the top who control a substantial amount of wealth compared to a poor mass at the bottom, so which I think is very important when we talk about privilege and privileged women's experience. How do they locate within the larger uh, demographic structure within the country? So um, apart from that, this kind of in, uh, increasing income gap, there are also gendered effects of economic restructuring in China. For example, the dismantling of China's iron uh, rice bowl that used to be the symbol of China's socialist past meant that during the mass wave of Xiagang laid off in the 1990s, female factory workers were more vulnerable to redundancy and were called upon to return home when unemployment rose. However, the gender impact is never one-sided. The economic reform also has broadened occupational choices as we see rural migrants entering cities to pick up factory works or service type of jobs. Although migration broadened their life horizons and increased their income, rural migrant women often work in low-skilled and low-paid factory jobs under unpleasant, if not dangerous, working conditions. So there is a shift from, um, we see that the, some scholars argue there is a shift from the socialist iron rice bowl to the rice bowl of youth, which infuse youthful feminine and urban bodies with values while simultaneously devaluing middle-aged laid-off workers and rural women. A rural woman. So you see that this very uh, complex pictures, and then you, it's very difficult to say the whether the economic um, reform has brought more opportunity to women in general. But we, we really need to dive into the different age groups and also uh, demographic groups um, to look into the nuances. So um, during, but in general, during this period, gender equality was subsumed into the market priority of profit, which made women vulnerable to discrimination in various sectors. Even for the the, the more privileged group that I'm looking at, the female graduates um, in particular have faced increased pressure or gender discrimination when it comes to the job market, job recruitment process. That is nothing new. And this particular issue that and has been discussed in more details um, in the later chapter of my book. So as you can see that um, the impact of reform, yes, on one hand, it did um, increase income and brought more opportunities. But on the other hand, it in many ways entrenched this kind of gendered gap between men and women. Um, and I think another 
part of、uh, this, the bigger picture is that the reform and opening up started hand in hand with the implementation of the one-child policy. Which is、um, almost start about the same time, and we have to understand how these two policies relate to each other. As a matter of fact, the one-child policy was designed to try to speed up China's economic modernization program in order to,、uh, well, so-called the slogan says, control population quantity, but at the same time improving population quality, which is quite telling in this slogan and what how、uh, what this policy was trying to achieve. So as I mentioned earlier, the deep root is some preference, and coupled with an an inadequate social security system under one child policy, means that the policy was、uh, diff、um, received differently by its rural and urban population. That lead to、uh, urban families, basically daughter born in the urban family, received unprecedented family investment.、Um, so I think. It is that at the same time within the countryside we see because of this existing social、uh, economic structure that means、uh, there are far more boys born under the chi-、uh, one-child policy than girls. So China actually sees the、uh, the worst sex ratio at birth,、um, uh, which is around one hundred fourteen male born for every one hundred females as of two thousand nineteen. That is already、um, at a time when the state is starting to tackle this. A, a screwed sex ratio at birth. So you can see that the the number is still quite、uh, in many ways shocking. So this kind of unprecedented a、uh, byproduct of one child policy leave a quite um. Tremendous challenge for the current、uh, regime to tackle, in the sense of how can they ensure the、uh, sustainability of its current development model to ensure China not only have enough supply of workers, but also how can they、uh, look have enough young people at work to in order to su-、uh, support its fast aging population, and then when it comes down to.、Um, Women's experience within the current、uh, structure is how women,、um, how marriage, heterosexual marriage in particular, becomes a、uh, sort of organize,、uh, organizing, organizing institutions to manage both producing and、uh, caring for the the China's labor force.、And、I think that is makes it interesting to look at women's experience in general. Um, so I think that hopefully this is a painting a picture to for my readers to understand、um, the the issues of women's so called private、uh, issues around marriage and childbirth is actually related to China's、uh, wider governing structures of relying on family manufacturing a particular kind of gendered self that fit in within its own、um, governing structure. That rely on family values, as we see in the current under Xi Jinping, there's a, this kind of heavy emphasis on、um, traditional family values, importance to achieve China's、uh, Chinese dreams through、um, Chinese values. So I think it's very, very、uh, relevant in today's China to look into the gender element and the impact、um, the po- reform and one-child policy has, and how gender becomes an important governing tool to、uh, sustain the current、um, system. The stability of the country.、Um, finally, I think、um, the one-child policy has also left produced in many ways the largest number of China's well-educated women in its long history. So one particular story、um, really、uh, struck me. Is I'm I'm pretty sure many of you would have a fam-、uh, be 
become familiar with the story because recently Disney has made produced a film about it, Hua Mulan. It's a classic ancient story of heroine of Hua Mulan who cross-dressed as a man to join the army on behalf of her father. Partially reflects a, hist- a historical ex- expectation of Chinese women in the past century, I would argue. So as we can see that as a different historical demand changes, Mulan's sacri- uh, Ma- Mulan's calling to sacrifice herself also changes. Sometimes it's just sacrifice for her father, for the family. Other times it is sacrifice for the national community, the national families. So I do wonder, as China is um, experiencing a, this kind of demographic ch- changes, aging population, dropping birth rate, what is the current history? historical demand will be placed on this group of Chinese women would be an interesting thing to look at. And I think um, to, to, in order to, like, to really examine whether the ethos behind Moonland's story remains, so what are the historical duties required of the women in my research cohort at this particular historical juncture, and how do they respond? So that is uh, what drives me to uh, carry on my research. Thank you, Kylie. That was really fascinating and really, really interesting to hear you open up all these different themes. Um, Just now you mentioned reproduction and especially reproduction in relation to sex ratio. But in chapter three, you focus more on premarital sex. Um, And in doing so, you uncover how it creates new dilemmas for young women. Perhaps we can um, talk a bit more about the contents of chapter three to to hear more about these dilemmas and the stigmas attached to premarital sex conduct and, of course, um, abortion as well. Well, to understand dilemma and the stigma faced by women in in China, um, and we have to also look at another uh, sort of changes brought by China's opening up policies and and also the the implementation of one-child policies. Because there's um, many scholars have... um, argued that there is this uh, so-called sex revolution that is happening um, brought by the opening up and the one-child policy. Because if you think about it, the one-child policy's implementation relies on this uh, mass distribution of and implementation of education of using contraceptive measures within family and intimate relationships, which in many ways it promoted the promotion of youth contraception among married couples and also, um, how to say, help spread the idea of sex for love and pleasure that separated from um, reproduction. So in many ways, this one-child one policy also drives uh, the women, uh, sorry, people's perception of the purpose of sex and then that some in many ways that lead to this kind of change and transformed social and sexual mores we observe in China. So it has manifested itself in many ways, a so-called sex revolution in China, such as there are definitely increased acceptance of premarital sex and the proliferation of pornography and prostitutions, rising divorce rate and the private permissiveness towards extramarital sex. So, um, despite the gradual loosening of restriction on personal sexual pleasure at, and desire, the, the government actually still trying, constantly trying to curb these less predictable social consequences through various measures in order to maintain control. 
for example, um, there are often waves of nationwide campaigns against pornography and prostitutions, which has led to numerous arrests and debates on the legal regulation of sex-related bribery and corruption among the government officials. One of my favorite uh, news, and um, sometimes you, you go online, you read these news like, in order to cam- um, cram down corruption, it's better rely on the uh, mistress of the government officials. I think it's quite interesting, uh, that indicator of this kind of moralization of sexual conduct that is still very much there and alive and within the uh, within the government official discourse. But in, in, in the Chinese school, there is very much a lack of uh, sex education uh, in general. But um, although there are sort of, um, well, uneven distribution or provision of sex education in school, but very much this kind of sex educa- education is, depend- uh, is trying to educate the children to tell them that it is dangerous and it's bad to have sex before marriage. And instead of providing information of safe sex, yeah. So I think, um, but on the other hand, um, the school does not exist in isolation. The kids grow up in a society that there are uh, loosening up of sex uh, attitude towards um, to, towards sex. So you see this kind of gap between moralism and realism. These uh, young people growing up and experience, and. Then on, on, on top of the, the school's non-provision of sex education or self-sex knowledge, there's also a lingering, um, quite actually strong, still very much hold on female sexuality is heavily moralized. And there's a double, very obvious double standard of sexuality between men and women. So the normali- uh, sorry, the moralization of female sexuality uh, create extra layer of problem for young women who experience uh, premarital sex or uh, or premarital um, pregnancy. So um, this creates basically further complicate uh, the pictures we are looking at. So um, so despite of the school, the lack of. Uh, comprehensive sexual education provided by the school, the young people actually are very adventurous and experimenting uh, um, in their private life in terms of there are increasingly um, people engaged in, young people engaged in casual sex or non-conjugal sex, commercial sex, and homosexuality. So these, the lack of sexual education does not really stop uh, young people's um, different um, sort of uh, sex behavior and experiment in their private life. So this, in, uh, I think, particularly is very, very um, problematic that I think that lead to the state to somehow finally, in until March 2017, there is, was this push of we must provide a safe sex education to school children because we see this kind of rising um Issues related to uh, prim- uh, sorry, teenager pregnancy, all these problems that because children, sorry, young people simply just don't have that knowledge to that match, equip them to deal with issues in their real life. But the, even this kind of by by the time of March two thousand seventeen, when I was writing this chapter, there was still this very strong pushback. Um, from society and from certain segments of uh, the government that really still very much hold on to this kind of conservative um, understanding of uh, young people should never have sex before marriage. So the, the textbook that were being um, brought in to school to educate children about safe sex were quick, quickly withdrawn. 
So you can see that I think this incident show us this ongoing battles between uh, moralism versus realism and how um, workers, well, teachers in schools trying to tackle this uh, particular issue that my chapter is trying to address um, is basically the tension between lived reality versus this kind of moral official discourse. And so um, all my participants described that premarital sex as very common and too normal among couples. But, and for them, premarital sex, including cohabitation, could be justified as part of marriage preparation. So it's very interesting that the, everybody talk about if marriage is in prospect, sex is excusable. So you can see that the boundary has been extended um, from strictly sex within marriage to marriage in prospect. So which I think reflect this kind of shifting um, uh shifting boundaries about young people's attitude towards uh towards sex but on the other hand then they also talk about like marriage is also this most important justification for sex which is which shows that uh the importance of heterosexual marriage within the uh, within the chinese moral landscape to justify um sex related uh, behaviors my participants' general tolerance towards premarital sex does not necessarily mean that everyone sees it as a positive thing worth promoting. That's quite interesting, isn't it? Especially for young women, they bear most of the tension between moralism and realism, and they are often blamed when things go wrong. For example, I still remember quite vividly, actually there were more than one participants, they don't know each other, they are not related, they're from different parts of China, but they use the same metaphor to, to basically try to explain to me how female rep- um, body can be damaged through premarital sex and or premarital abortion in particular in multiple ways. So if I may just quote what they said about this. And so... These two women, basically, at the same time, they described that, well, um, a lot of men have female virginity complex. There's a, a popular saying says, nowadays, uh, in the past, it is said that you must save your virginity for your husband, uh, whereas now, you should guarantee that your first child is your husband's, and nobody wants to buy a property that somebody has died in it. So in this case, they are referring to female body who, uh, which had an abortion before marriage, and that is um, regarded as a broken property. Therefore, has been devalued in the marriage market, and that is not good for the future husband. So I think this these are well the striking metaphor. I think is used by these uh, women, and it shows that they are women themselves are fully aware that it's still existing strongly um, this kind of virginity complex and also this kind of um, very much male privileged understanding of sex and sexuality that moralize heavily moralize women's reproductive body and um, um, treating them as uh, male properties and I think comes out quite strongly in this metaphor so what um, what does this kind of landscape lead us to is this uh, all my participants no matter whether they uh, are more sympathetic for premarital abortion of women or they are against it personally but they all say if marriage is not um, possible um, for the couple abortion is the only responsible choice and it has to be done in secret so i think that really highlights that um 
this the women's agencies is very much constrained by a moralized discourse of female sexuality and the sexual double standards in the marriage market and the um and I, I mean, women in this scenario are, are never powerless victims. And actually, they're actively trying to work out the most pragmatic solution for the problems. And I use because it's still quite, it's still very um, sensitive topic about premarital abortion. So I used a vignette to try to invite my participant to comment on this scenario. So all the solution, the solution they offered is um, abortion in secrecy is the most responsible choice for the woman in the situation. It is responsible not only for herself and in order to to protect her future marriage prospect, and also it is responsible for the unborn child because if you cannot give a child a so-called happy, uh, complete heterosexual family environment, it is better not to be born. So I think the value of life and different challenges of single single parenthood in China also contribute to this such understanding. And also, finally, these women believe that abortion in secrecy in this scenario also is a responsible choice for her family, for her parents, for her extended family, because they can, she can doing so, she can protect them from moral judgment of the society. So I think, I mean, this is, comes out very clearly that the very constrained landscape um, women's agency trying to operate and how uh, the double uh, standard between, in terms of sex condom between women, uh, women and men is very much there and alive. And this constrained kind of this constrained landscape that, that you just described in the great detail um, decides the standards of when is the right time for childbirth for a woman. And you go into this topic more in chapter four of your book, where you look at the meaning making around childbearing and the tensions that women face in order to fulfill the social and medical norms around reproduction. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit more about some of these tensions and what role do family members play in safeguarding the naturalization of motherhood? Zoom. I think it's quite interesting uh, after con- uh, looking into like people's belief and attitude towards marital abortion and the justification they give is very much leading towards this pointing us to look at the importance of marriage for these women's future uh the perception of their future life because marriage is something that has that will happen it has to happen and it must happen in many ways but what does marriage actually mean for these women what does it uh what does it bring what kind of function it serves that is that leads me to uh the questions i was trying to address in this particular chapter that is marriage is very much uh understood as a site of uh, reproductions. That is a place, the conjugal family is a site for raising up uh, children. So a motherhood and very, well, motherhood in China is very much understood as not a choice per se, but it's almost, um, I would say subconsciously is perceived as a duty, probably less um, less consciously being perceived as a duty, but everybody I spoke to talk about um, becoming a mother, having a child, not as a choice at all. It, they very much talk, uh, talk about it as, oh, we must, I must have a child for my family, or, oh, this is not even a question. It's a question out of question, whether or not I have a child. I must have a child. 
And so um, the naturalization of reproduction is as almost becomes a psychological uh, psychological instinct, at least for women. In women, uh, and having a child is almost as much as uh, an inevitability of female body as dying. That has come out very strongly in my interview. Um, so all these women talking about this is this is something has to happen. It will happen, and they will try very uh, much to make it happen. But this does not mean that there comes with uh, without any tension, especially uh, personal struggles in order to reconcile their uh, their own uh, wants and desires versus the expectation from them from their family and uh, society. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters and what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or Zepbound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. So um I think one one um well one thing I brought out in this chapter is this timing motherhood under intensified pressure which I think really highlights and uh, reflects the uh the internalized tension and stress these women has to go through in order to fulfill the multiple expectations on them uh, to be a so-called like uh fulfilled woman and a good daughter and also a good mother in the future. So in this chapter, I made a, a image which is based on my interview um, uh, transcripts that to de- how these women describe different age in their life, what they should achieve. So, um, so basically, typically, a female, if you think about it, a female students finish their undergraduate degree at the age of 22. Then they have about five years to secure a career and pin down a husband before being labeled as leftover at the age of 27. If these women are lucky enough to be married by them, they have about three years left to give birth because China has this, has this very strong uh, eugenic uh, belief and um, this kind of inf- promotion of eugenic uh, understanding of what can counted as good quality birth. Yeah, so that also plays another layer of uh, of uh, pressure on these women to make sure they give birth not too late because uh, the fear of um, not being able to produce a healthy, um, good quality baby is very much a lingering fear among my participants. So if they are lucky enough to be married by the age of 27, they have three years to uh, left to give birth before the age of 30. Um, and then at least the at least the first child under the uh, 
well, now the policy has changed to three-child policy. So I guess there is definitely a more intensified pressure there in for them to achieve the target. Um, if if she does not accomplish all these on time after the age of thirty five, which is the age repeatedly appeared presented by my uh, female participant as a, dan- a dangerous age, after that, uh, the common popular perception of age thirty five is after that it is very difficult to conceive and to produce good quality children. Yeah, so there is this, um, after the age of 35, if she still have not achieved these, very often um, there is this sense of personal failures and um, being viewed as a social outcast and they have somehow failed being a woman. So this this timeline I mapped out um, in, in the image I include in my book, I think really highlights the exacerbated pressures women uh, experience and have to go through in order to fulfill all these expectations um, in, in the society and also, more importantly, very uh, intimately felt in their family life. That can bring us to uh, talk, discuss a little bit about the role of family members in these women's reproductive decision making. And I think while the authoritarian, I think for those of you who are familiar with um, with the Chinese context, you know that uh, filial piety is very important, very much rooted within the Chinese culture. Although the 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 uh, the, uh, the communist come, came to power and also the econ- economic reform has in many ways uh, reduced the the, the power of authoritarian filiality, which is the parents can dictate what happens to their children. That is very much uh, the practice of the past. But we, we see that a new form of reciprocal family obligations is increasing and is increasingly observed um, as a filial practice that the generations of the parents and children and increasingly um, building this kind of um, codependence and emotional bond and commitment to one another. I think this is very important for us to understand the role of family members in women's reproductive decision-making because the uh, the practice of love within the family, within the Chinese context, very much involves mutual consideration of each other's feelings. So there is a, there is a saying in China saying that, well, um, well, the, Traditionally, we say um, if you the top priority of of filial piety is carrying on the family bloodline. Yeah, um, for the one child generations, a woman from the one child generation, whether she has a child or not, or have children or not, is not only about herself. It is also about her own family because she does not have a male siblings. Um, to carry on the family life, but it also very often these women also marry into uh, married to somebody who is also the only child in his family, the husband. So therefore, the responsibility laid on her shoulder to reproduce for both families very very heavy and very intimately felt in these women's life. So um, I interviewed um, some women. They were talking about even though for themselves they really don't have the urge to have a child any anytime soon, but they are fully aware that in order to be an, a loving wife and be a good daughter, and this is not a, a personal choice. Is they um, they can make depend on their personal preference, but it's very much a duty. And if they love their family, if they love their partner, they have to have a child for them. So I think for me, the power of love and the practice of love is very much um, 
important for me to understand how uh, women's dis- uh, reproductive decision making um, happens within the family door. But on the other hand, it's not only uh, women or children trying to fulfill the parents' wishes in order to give uh, give a grandchild to the family, carry on the family line. Very much this kind of in- um, increased emotional bond between parents and their children, particularly mother and the daughters, also means that the mother, the maternal uh the mother of the uh, the woman the young woman's mother very often play a very significant role in the decision making with whether or not or when she will have a child or have two children or three now because we um we know that grandparents, especially grandmother, forms the majority of childcare support within Chinese families when the couple are busy at work and then and also, this kind of increased emotional bond between mother and their only daughters means that the mothers are often genuinely concerned about their daughters' future fortunes. And then the lack of public um, provision of welfare within Chinese society means that family remains the only the most reliable sort of welfare provision for individuals within Chinese society. Therefore, the mothers of the uh, of the the young women often really trying to make sure their daughter follows the so called normal life course in order to, in some way, guarantee the future of their daughter will be somehow secured by having a child in the future to look after them. So, I think the practice of love comes out very strongly from both dimensions from parent from parents and mother to their daughter, and also from children to their parents in order to fulfill their filial uh, duty towards the family. And that all these, um, the practice of love and perception of love means that young women's reproductive decisions are never their own. And it is related to the family, the future of the both sides of the family. Hmm. Really fascinating. Thank you, Kailin. Um, so talk on this theme of love and responsibility and sacrifice, um, perhaps we can move into the theme of gendered subjectivity that you, that you um, expand on in Chapter 5. And in this chapter, you pay particular attention to the neoliberal discourse of a desiring and enterprising self and seeking personal happiness through hetero- heterosexual marriage. Can you tell us a bit more about what what are some of the restrictions that these discourses carry and how do they frame an ideal notion of marriage that is both a struggle and a solution for women? Well, for me, this chapter is trying to work out, even though it's such a pain for uh, these women to meet those deadlines, as I discussed in the last chapter, uh, to meet, uh, to fulfill marriage and childbirth expectations. Why there are still so many women, young women I interview, determined, they're fully determined and committed to achieve these goals. So what drives them? So I'm trying to illustrate and trying to understand this from the um, to unpack this subjective experience of attempting to embody the exemplary gendered middle class ideal, and to trying to unpack how their personal desires drives uh, them to conform to this very rigid, narrow definition of personal success and happiness. So, um. And I'm trying to also in this chapter discuss the political implication of the gendered construction of sub, uh, subjectivity in contemporary Chinese society and how their personal uh, subjectivity, subjectivity fit into within the wider governing structure of the state. Okay, how their desires uh, locate within the political agenda of the state. So um, obviously, 
and as I mentioned earlier at the beginning, the the Chinese um the uh, op- the reform and opening up has somehow used relied upon consumerism to boost economic growth, and the the roots of consumerism I, I I hope that most of us would agree is rely on the personal desires. The, the, our desires to be loved, to be wanted, and to be successful in the societal standards is very much drives our consumption habit. So I think this is a, uh, for me, it's a very important analytical, analytical tool to understand these women's behaviors and choices they made in their uh, private dating uh, life. So in boarding, um, for 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 these women, I'm looking at they very much belongs to this cohort of high quality uh, population within Chinese society. Don't forget that they are all well educated, working this kind of very glamorous, uh, or relatively speaking, glamorous white collar professions. Then, therefore, their life embodies a high uh, quality middle class ideal. And then, then they also grow up at a time that China um, is using this kind of neoliberal techniques to foster the belief of in self development, and therefore these women constantly also um, uh, how to say display this kind of understanding of they need to constantly seeking opportunity for self development in order to better locate themselves within China's fast changing class structure. So um, I think this is important for us to understand um, how they behave in terms of their uh, choices of career and their consumption patterns, as well as their dating practices. So um, all my participants have, in one way or another, display, um, somehow like um, trying to embody what um, um, we would describe as imagined middle-class ideals whose cultural lifestyles rest upon strong economic foundations. Yeah, then through display of consumptions and through lifestyle choices like traveling and reading books, and it's very much class-based uh, practices in their uh, in their life. That, but all of these practices rest upon a strong economic foundations. That means that my participants are um, they are determined to secure their privileged social position or through individual effort that lead them to um, basically believe that they must have their own economic um, independence through paid work. So a lot of them talk about they need, uh, they go to, um, how to say, evening classes to seek opportunities to better equip themselves in the job market. And then they uh, basically uh, engage with all sorts of uh, personal development programs in order to um, secure their position and as worthy, complete, and superior within China's social order. So become this kind of exa- part of the exemplary norm of success within the Chinese society. So they all believe that uh, paid work is very important for them as um, um, to be part of this kind of modern, successful uh, women in society. And then that will enable them to display their value through uh, lifestyle choices and consumption habits and et cetera, et cetera. So, and so that is one, uh, one side of how they construct their self as this kind of um, 
uh, embodying this middle class ideal. But on the other hand, in their romantic life, and they all consciously negotiate love and class in very interesting ways and that does not really directly challenge the, the patriarchal uh, male-centered culture and practices in, date, in, in the dating scene. For example, a lot of my, um, my participants has talked about um, that they would, um, in order to secure her Mr. Right, the uh, a woman need to learn how to sa jiao. Sa jiao in, the Chinese, in Chinese basically uh, is a strategy that uh, developed as part of a gendered survival strategy in the patriarchal culture that is trying to negotiate in a long-threatening manner to, uh, that is a very popular strategy for, to, for the young women to, to perform their femininities. That it often involves behaving in a pettishly charming manners by using a childlike tone and voices and play down and not threaten their male counterpart in the dating practice in order to secure their, um, basically, uh, their romantic relationship. So um, I think this is very interesting that see that how these women, even though they are very often very privileged and very competitive in their uh, professional life, but in, when it comes to the private life, they consciously made the choice to perform their femininity in order to fit in within the existing patriarchal uh, uh, dating culture that does not pose a threat to their male partners. On the other hand, um, the, I also interviewed uh, their male peers, a lot of them talking about how to um, their ideal sort of female partners should not be those who are too materialistic and then they should not be uh, too, how to say, uh, too outgoing in, and in the sense of um, having too much social uh, interactions with uh, men outside. And this is a quote, quote from one of my participants, which basically suggests that they also expect their ideal uh, female partner or marriage partner to be uh, relatively um, domesticated. That does not really threaten or challenge the existing sort of gendered boundaries of still men are stronger than women. And... Um, her position within the relationship in, in many ways need to um, somehow uh, conform to the uh, existing gender regime. So I think um, I think I, what I observed within uh, within my uh, among my participants is like they're very much consciously trying to uh, cultivate a self, a feminine self that fitting fit within the existing patriarchal practice culture. But on the other hand, they're prof- uh, they also believe that their middle class in um, in, bo- in order to embody this kind of middle class gendered ideal to be successful, they also have to be independent economically in order to have a strong economic foundation. Um, to fulfill their expectation of consumption and lifestyle. And I think it's not hard to see the contradiction within this landscape. And how can you reconcile um, these two and how easy for, uh, women, for young women to really fulfill within this very much constrained uh, structure in order to uh, marry, um, to find a suitable marriage partner for life. So what I've seen, uh, what I'm trying to conclude is that we, um, even located in a rather privileged position on the Chinese social ladder, most of my participants display a strong belief in continuous self-betterment as a qualified neoliberal subject um, who is determined to achieve success in life through their individual uh, efforts. However, the definition of a successful life for women is still very much rooted in this kind of romanticized understanding of a happy marriage. 
and then that rely upon certain uh, rather narrowed um, uh, gendered practice. Um, so, however, this societal perception of person this is very much deeply gendered. Well, a man's success is primarily measured by his outward achievement of being a main provider for and protector of uh, of his family. For women, her success is very much still judged predominantly through her married domestic life. So the more a woman tries, the more likely she would encounter challenges in finding a suitable partner to marry in China's patriarchal marriage market. As she becomes more successful, the less choices and she would have in terms of the suitable uh, pool of um, partners in the marriage market. Because very much there is still this kind of women marry up um, in um, whereas men marry down. So if you are already uh, relatively privileged women, your choices is very much limited. That is why I say that marriage for these women is both a solution for their personal problem in order to be perceived as successful in the society, but at the same time, it is a struggle. It is a constant struggle to negotiate and to conform in many ways and in their private life in order to really find this uh, find a solution within the current structure and i think the the role of the state again is we cannot neglect how family uh, how the state will continues to rely on family to provide future uh, the welfare of its population therefore it's very much encourage such romanticized essentialist understanding of heterosexual marriage as the life goal for many of my participants both men and women which i would argue pose particular problem for women i interviewed hmm. and and so far, you've been talking a lot about the goals, the aspirations, these kind of um, subjectivities. But in chapter six, you you delve more into the gendered experiences of marriage and work. Can you tell our listeners a bit about how work becomes gendered through some of the narratives that you convey in your book? Of course. Well, gendered stratific, uh, stratification, both vertically and horizontally, is nothing new, really. It has been observed widely across culture and different countries. In China, the fast expansion of the, the service industry under the reform has absorbed large numbers of female employees. In many ways, it has given women a lot of um, um, op- occupational choices and op- um, opportunities. And then such industry also diverse, diversified from 1992 to 2006, which created a big demand for well-qualified young professionals to work in high-value-added industries, such as, for example, finances, IT or telecommunication, etc. So it is within this economic context that uh, my participants enter the job market. So they are privileged through their higher education and accompanied by the mixed influence on marketization and global capitalism with its increasing appreciation of meritocracy at work. So these women all engaged, those I interviewed, all engaged in types of work that are classifiable as white-collar office-based roles which is where I focus on uh, my analysis on. So it's this particular type of work. So when it comes to how work is gendered and become gendered space, and they can, there are multi-layered that I can, I was, I was trying to unpack. So when I was talking, um, when I was talking to them about their experience at work, um, my participants' narratives about their 
occupational choices very much reveal the gendered connotations and the perceptions that is uh, there in Chinese society. So the general consensus is that working in education and other customer-facing or supportive roles are better suited to women because of their gendered attributes makes them more so-called, quote, patient, detailed, gentle, and caring, which could better serve others' needs. Um, so this is very much a consensus among my participants. And I will just take uh, one particular example, which is a, a male teacher I interviewed. So he is one of the rare male teachers in his schools and also reflects uh, w- w- how he talks about his job and I think reflects the prevailing gender norms in education in school in China. So he says, in teaching, it is definitely true that women outnumber men. It suits women better because they are more patient, caring, and loving. Traditionally, we believe that to be a good teacher is like being a loving mother. I think it's better. Then I ask him, can men not be loving? And Jerry says, well, they could be. But normally, just like the saying goes, which is strict father, loving mother. That's why we have fewer men working in education. Another important reason is that compared to other jobs like working in a in the government office or commercial institutions, there seems to be an invisible wall between the real society and school. This is what Jerry said. The, he says its environment, the school he refers to, is purer for women. As teachers mainly deal with underage innocent students, the environment is less stressful and purer compared to others. You don't need to spend too much energy or time to engage in exhausting social activities, acting like a creep. In order to build up guanxi relationship, that's a Chinese term for relationship, like in other industries, which can be precarious and dangerous, you can have more time and energy for your family. So I think his narrative um, here is quite telling in the sense that it reveals the existing gender boundary between uh, domestic and public space uh, permeating people's consciousness. So his choice of language, as he said, although metaphorically uh, visualize how space is understood to have gendered connotations. So he refers to school as a space that God's students and their teachers presumably female against the com- contamination and danger of the real outside world that he refers to as uh, within uh, there's a wall caught uh, protect them from the outside real outside world so the environment is less stressful and pure that he, what he said as a women's main contact would be underage innocent students so Jerry also uh, contrast it with working in the real society outside the world such as uh, or, uh, like uh, government officials or working business, which are mainly male-dominated. Therefore, it is understood as precarious and dangerous for women. So um, because of the, is this exist, um, exhausting social activities he refers to involve, in, they might distract women's attention and energy away from the family. So while I was probing further, what does he mean by this, like, dangerous um, dangerous environment for women. And, and, and both him and other participants has, uh, has shared with me that this, this, there is this kind of very um, uh, well, strong work culture in place that very often 
um, in business practices and in other institutions that exploit women's sexuality in order to sustain a heteronormative masculine organizational culture. And then it's very much uh, rely on consuming female sexuality in the business practice to seal deals. And that is, I think, that is what Jerry is referring to in order to uh, protect women uh, to be exposed um, or exposed um, how to say have too much let's say quotation mark too much contact with within uh, with such male uh, activities that might punish uh, her uh, sexual reputation as a decent uh, woman that can further lead to her disadvantaged position in the marriage market as I already mentioned that how um, female sexuality still remain um, heavily moralized in the Chinese society therefore defending her, Reputation as a decent, uh, respectable woman is very much um, is very important for these women. So themselves, a lot of women I interviewed themselves also talk about how they trying to avoid it, to engage with this kind of male dominated um, activities in workplace. That is also sadly um, would. Um, means that they also lose promotion opportunities and to, um, because, because they cannot or choose not to engage with these kind of male bonding activities that, that can be, uh, pose a sort of, um, risk of their, uh, sexual reputation in work. They also lose promotion, uh, promotion chances and become further marginalized in their workplace. So on the other hand, there's another interesting thing I observed that even in school, like a, Jerry is the uh, the one of those rare male teachers. So because schools are um, is very much dominated by women because it's per- been perceived as better suited for women. But even within these like uh, female dominated spaces, when it comes to promotion, male teachers remain somehow being preferred in the promotion because of this very much rooted understanding of women as weaker sex. They are less, less capable in terms of, in, very, in, in, some, in some way, are very silly because they, the example one of my participants gave me was um, because uh, uh, women cannot carry heavy stuff, um, they cannot control effectively, uh, how to say, protect students when they take, out, take them out for sort of... Um, Outings, therefore, the school prefer to promote male teachers to to a more pro- important roles and to take more responsibility. And another reason for uh, women's disadvantaged position in the workplace in terms of promotion is the cost of maternity. Uh, maternity. So, in terms of um, the how the school or different work unit to have to cover uh, the cost of um, women go on maternity leave is very much. Um, a part of the concern or rejection of promoting women. And I have witnessed a growing sort of uh, this kind of rising trend of women's the discrimination women uh, experience since the change of, the, how to say, the replacement of one-child policy with policy that prom- um, um, expect women to have more than uh, one or two children nowadays. So it's very much a part of the daily encounter of women I uh, interviewed. So this is, even though the Chinese law um, prohibits such discrimination, but in practice, there are so many different loopholes that um, different organizations um, put in place to ensure the cost of maternity is not, um, uh, how to say, uh, um, they don't have to pay for this. Therefore, women are very much marginalized and, and 
discriminated against in the workplace. So even in those places, uh, women are presumably better suited, like schools um, and service industries. So I think that um, all these come together, created a very much um, gendered work culture and workspace that consolidate a male-centered public, uh, the space that restrict women's career progressions from recruitment to promotion. And that the multiple pull and push factors come together to place these women um, in a very disadvantaged position at work. Yeah, thank you. That was really fascinating. Um, moving to the conclusion of your book, in this conclusion, you describe the contradictions that Chinese privileged women live in. And um, you draw on the hope of illuminating the constraints that Chinese women need to cast off in order to seek an egalitarian society. Um, perhaps, Kailin, you could tell us a bit more about how you envision this kind of egalitarian future of drawing on the research that you've collected over the years. Well, my whole book and also my ongoing research is basically trying to illuminate that how gender, and this especially gender in terms of heterosexual culture, is part of this very powerful governing regime within Chinese society that is rooted and within this essentialist understanding of the differences between men and women that leave very little room for critical uh, evaluation of gender practices. So I think um, through my book, I was trying to present, and even among those who are privileged in the Chinese society, gender inequality remains a massive hurdle for individuals to, who want to live a fulfilled life outside the societal norms. So, and also in, in China, on top of the uh, social and cultural norms around masculinity and feminism that governs people's behavior and restrain their personal choices, the role of the state is very significant in achieving, um, how to say, in creating such a structure that either could uh, become hurdle or trying to or can become can facilitate the um, to in achieving an egalitarian future. So for me, such a future means that we really need to have a complete rejection of the essentialist understanding of gender and sex as the significant category of human life. Yeah. Why we take, uh, why, um, so how can, why gender is so important in our still very much important category to categorize you and me as individual? Why not our hair color, for example? So I think one, um, I think we really need to work out a way to queer gender and family practices in order to challenge the single meaning of a fulfilled life. So if one day for me, we can um, sit here and talk about gender differences as if we are talking up, if we are talk about, we are talking about the color of our hair or the pair of shoes you and me choose, choose to wear today. I think we would have achieved our goal. So to make it less a significant demarcator of our uh, subjectivity and that uh, categorize shape our life chances. Whereas for China, I think the state will need to really reevaluate its long political tradition of linking governing the country and governing the family, which will be a long and painful process, in my opinion, if ever imaginable. Thank you, Kailin. That's that's a lot to think about. And um, and it's, it really draws on your work. And, and um, I wanted to ask you more about um, 
what you've been working on now that you mentioned just now briefly, a lot of um, embody embodying middle-class gender aspirations, um, the objectives of this book are continuous in your current project. And um, I'd really love to hear more about um, what it is that you're working on and how you continue to kind of pursue this idea of egalitarian society through gender. Well, I think um, in my current book, and I think the gender aspiration is very much my uh, sort of exploration of how take a Foucauldian approach to power to see how power works effectively through our pers uh, individual subjectivities and also, our, more importantly, our personal desires and wants. So I think this monograph builds a foundation for my uh, current research project that are trying to further link the familial norms and the family practice to state governance in contemporary Chinese society and to evaluate its global impacts as we see China rise on the global stage. So my current project is titled as Politics of Love, Emotional Governance Under Familial Nationalism in China's New Era, which I aim to understand the ways the Chinese party states try to win and shape the hearts and soul of the Chinese people through the lens of gender and to investigate the reproduction of social reproduction of the Chinese nation under its current leader, which I believe is hopefully both timely and important given our current political climate around the world. I can definitely assure that it is both timely and important. Kailing, that sounds like a fantastic project. Um, I really look forward to hearing and reading more about it as it unfolds, as I imagine so do our listeners. But for now, I want to thank you so much, Kailing, for putting time aside and joining us to talk about your work today. Well, thank you so much, Suvi, and then for this fantastic opportunity for me to share my work. And um, it's a great pleasure to be here today. Thank you, Kailing. And thank you also to our listeners for tuning into New Books and Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Have a great week, everyone. Goodbye. <laughs>